The reading this morning is from the book of Revelation, chapter 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten crowns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time, out of the servant's reach. Then from his mouth the servant spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commandments and hold fast to the testimony about Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. My wife was seated next to me, as usual. When that scripture reading uh, was read by Dan, and she said very quietly, oh my. And I said to her, well, don't worry about it. You don't have to preach from it. She said, no, I'm worried about what you're going to say. So so with that as my introduction, and some of you worried about what I'm going to say, I begin this way. Have you ever had one of those dreams that was just horrific and you wanted to wake up, but it just kept going on? I don't know if the vision of the book of Revelation given to John felt like that or not, but I have to admit, if the revelation had been delivered to me, 
I would have felt that way. Especially by the time I get to chapter 12 and 13 and 14, I wouldn't want to say to God, enough already. I got to wake up out of this. <laughs> I got to get on with it. This is horrific. Maybe John felt that way. Maybe he didn't. No matter. We're in a very difficult section of the book of Revelation. It's graphic. Just to quickly rehearse what you heard read from chapter 12. A great and wondrous sign appeared in the heavens. The first great and wondrous sign looked like this. It was a woman who was clothed with the sun and standing on the moon. And her head was crowned with 12 stars. She cried out in childbirth. And there was a dragon. A nasty red dragon. With seven heads and ten horns. And with a tail, as you can see in that picture, that swept a third of the stars from the heavens and threw them down to the earth. I don't know if any of you have been to Arizona and seen the meteor crater that happened there who knows how long ago. It's a gigantic hole in the ground. It's actually two and a half miles wide, 550 feet deep. My son and I stood there in utter amazement. Imagine, will you? If that meteor, which was tiny, was a part of a meteor shower like the one just described in the book of Revelation. A third of the stars crashing to the earth. Can you imagine how catastrophic it would be? The woman who was in childbirth was pursued by the dragon. As a matter of fact, the dragon stood right there waiting to devour the child as it emerged. But God snatched up the child and took it to the throne room of heaven and gave the woman relief, helped her escape to a place that was prepared for her. Following that, the dragon, which we see as Satan, did war with Michael, the archangel, and his angels. The battle in heaven was enormous. But the dragon could not defeat Michael and the angels, and he was thrown from the heavens and hurled to the earth. By the way, the woman had escaped. Interestingly enough, on the wings of an eagle into the wilderness, prepared for her by God. The dragon hits the earth and is enraged and continues to pursue the woman. The image that you heard read is that out of his mouth flows an enormous river. I can't imagine what the water out of the dragon's mouth must have looked like or smelled like. But again, God intervenes and opens up the earth and swallows up the river that would have consumed her. And she's safe. But the dragon, enraged by his lack of success, strikes out over all the earth against the woman's offspring. 
tormenting them as only he can. That's part one of the story in chapter 12. Part two of the story comes in chapter 13. And in chapter 13, the dragon now stands on the shore of a great sea. And as he stands there, he beckons two beasts out of that sea. One beast is a political beast. That beast emerges with ten horns and seven heads and ten crowns on each horn. And words that are blasphemous against God. Actually, that beast, I've seen some artist renditions of it. I can't imagine what it must have looked like in the vision. It resembled a leopard with feet like a bear and the mouth of a lion. And it was given authority over all the earth. The beast also had a fatal wound on its head. That's the first beast. The first beast has political power. The second beast that emerges from the sea is the one that has religious influence. It had two horns like a lamb, perhaps symbolic of the fictitious lamb and not the real lamb. But it spoke like a dragon. And this beast had the power to kill people all over the earth. And its chief job was to convince people by manipulation and deceit in power to bow down and worship the first beast. And he was successful. People all over the earth bowed down to worship the beast. And their form of worship is interesting, among other things. They accepted the mark of the beast, which is said to be 666, imprinted apparently on the forehead in John's vision. And if they did not have that mark of the beast, they could not buy or sell or basically exist. The third part of the story comes to us in chapter 14. At this point, the scene turns dramatically. And John sees the Lamb that we know of as the Lamb of God standing on Mount Zion. And with him are 144,000 faithful followers. And on their foreheads is stamped the name of the Father. Quite a contrast to the beast. Those people are those who have not defiled themselves by following the beast. And have followed the lamb with all sincerity and purity. Then three angels appear in the sky. And they are giving messages to the whole earth. And the first angel's message is what is called basically the proclamation of the gospel. His words, among others, are fear God and glorify him. 
The second angel cries out a different message, and he says, Fallen is Babylon the Great, that nation that made the other nations drunk with licentiousness and idolatry. And the third angel has a singular message, right to the point. Don't worship the beast. There's a message in this same chapter following those messages from the angel. And the message from John's apocalypse is this. This calls for patient endurance for those who follow the Lamb. And then these words. Actually, you may have heard him used at a funeral. I've used them before at funerals. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. They will rest from their labors and their deeds or their works will follow them. Then a white cloud appeared in the heavens and someone was in or on that cloud that appeared to be the Son of Man. A gold crown was on his head and he had a sickle in his hand. And he had angels under his command who also had sickles in their hand. The sickles were used to harvest, (coughs) excuse me, on the earth. And when the harvest was cut up, the description is that the grapes were thrown thrown into the wine press of the wrath of God. But that's not all. The wine press of the wrath of God visually is blood. Blood pouring from the wine press And it covers the earth as high as the bridles of horses. Yeah, about that time, I would want to wake up, wouldn't you? But what you need to know is that John was just past the halfway point in the Revelation. He didn't divide his Revelation up into chapters like we do. But there's eight more to go. So what's all this mean? Well, first let me acknowledge something that I'm sure you know. There are too many interpretations for me to cover. So I won't attempt to do it. I'm not going to go with the historicist, preterist, futurist, spiritualist, and do them all. I'm just going to do one summary which is a summary, a summary of a futurist position concerning these images. And again, I say a summary because within the futurist perspective or interpretation, there are multiple interpretations within the larger futurist interpretation. 
So this is a bit of a conglomeration, but I think it well represents the futurist interpretation. Also, let me remind you that if you have been following along, you know by now the futurist interpretation is probably the dominant interpretation of the book of Revelation in the 20th century. That doesn't mean it is the interpretation, nor does it mean that I agree with it, as you probably have already guessed. But it is the dominant one. So what are the images in this section of the book of Revelation? Well, one image, of course, is the woman and the child. Some people look at that as an image of Mary and Jesus. And it's hard not to think of that, isn't it, when you read it? Mary, under the attack of Satan, except through Herod, escapes with Joseph to Egypt, the so-called wilderness, where they're protected, and then the child is delivered and eventually ascends to the throne of God. Kind of hard not to think about that, I would imagine, for anybody who reads that passage. Others say, for instance, that that's not the proper interpretation of this. More specifically, the proper interpretation of the woman is a description of the faithful people of Israel who actually follow the Messiah. And they're forced to flee into the wilderness during the time called the Great Tribulation. One of the more specific interpretations of this relates to future events that involve nations that we know very well. So the chief ally, our nation of the friend of Israel, is the United States. Some interpreters say, here's what that image indicates. At a point in the end times, the best ally of Israel will coordinate an airlift out of Israel into the wilderness to protect the faithful Israel from Armageddon and the tribulation. I guess you wouldn't be surprised that I think that a bit fanciful. But it's out there. The first beast is routinely expected to be almost the same thing across the board. The first beast is a political leader who subjects the whole world with his power. And the second beast is his religious counterpart who reinforces the power of the beast and demands worship of that beast. The mark of the beast has been referred to in a variety of ways. Probably one of the more popular ones years back, and perhaps still today with some, is that the mark of the beast represents a cashless society where only credit cards and debit cards can be used. And that credit or debit card, as you might expect, is your mark. Others suggest that the mark is literally on the forehead. 
Some suggest that the mark of the beast is a computer chip inserted into a part of your body so they can keep track of you and you can buy only because you have the chip. Beep. At the grocery store. One of the most recent interpretations, not from a reputable theologian, but it's out there, is that um, the COVID vaccine is the new mark of the beast. So with all of that, what do you make of this? Whatever the mark of the beast is, 666, it will be impossible to do business without it. Most people understand the mark of the beast to be symbolic because six is a human number, the number for humanity, 666 indicating only humanity, no worship of God. What is also not clear but speculated about is what are the bowls of wrath or the cups of wrath that are poured out in chapter 14. Many futurists suggest that the cups of wrath or the bowls of wrath are future global unparalleled catastrophic judgment by God. Unparalleled in history. And the end of it all is, and the beginning and the middle, the great tribulation and finally the battle of Armageddon. The last great battle of humankind at the end of which Christ appears in the sky and sets up his millennial kingdom on earth. So there you have it for one broad interpretation of these chapters. I guess this is the part my, my wife gets nervous with because I never quite line up with that interpretation or many others. So let me tell you what I think about this passage in light of those interpretations. I think that the interpretation that I just represented is diminished by particularity. Now, I see the furrowed brows even behind the mask, diminished by particularity. What I mean is that any theory that becomes very particular about events and times and places and details and applies them to the future or the past or the present, any of those theories which drill down in terms of particularity diminish the text itself. To put it another way, I don't find this interpretation to be compelling because I think it's too specific I think it's too reductionistic, and I think it's too simple. Now, of course, all three of those words basically mean the same thing. And I intended to use them in a reiterative way. 
all of those words express something I think is probably not the best way to approach this text. Why? Because it seems to me that the book of Revelation and these chapters in particular have multiple layers of meaning. Historical, theological, and in every other way. And to isolate it to a particular meaning actually depletes the text of other rich meaning that is embedded within it. Some of the predictions in the futurist approach to this text uh, and the entire book of Revelation, some of those images that are linked to the future might have remarkable similarities to what is going on or what seems to be happening in the future. But that, even if they seem perfectly accurate, still does not exhaust the prophetic image. The prophetic image is bigger than the particular. Let me put it this way. It's quite possible that the interpretation of these predictions that I have just delineated for you could be accurate. But even if they were accurate, they would be incomplete. Because there's more. So for those of you who are interested, and maybe some are, maybe some aren't, I can give you, to this date, my summary of prophetic apocalyptic literature like Revelation and Daniel and even passages in the Gospels. It's pretty simple, but maybe complex. These events have already happened. And these events are happening. And these events will happen in the future in a final cataclysmic way. In other words, God through his revelation spoke words to first century Christians that seemed identical to their experience. And it was. Nero was the Antichrist. And many people who have followed him historically have been the Antichrist. Persecution was all around them. People did die. Famine did strike. But not every one of those events can be interpreted in one particular era because they have repeated themselves in history numerous times and they will finally repeat themselves in the cataclysmic end. These powerful images reemerge in history. And to say that does not diminish their reality, it enhances it. 
So let me conclude with what I call a spiritual or theological application for the text that we've explored here in the last few minutes. They fall under three categories. First, the danger of the political beast. The danger of the political beast. My friends, you know it as well as I do, that in the human heart, there is an insatiable appetite for power and control. And you also may recognize that that insatiable appetite for power and control manifests itself very publicly in the political arena over and over again. This particular first beast, in my opinion, does not need to be a one-world dictator in order to qualify as the beast or the antichrist. Any number of candidates could qualify. It doesn't necessarily suggest a dictator or a one-world government. You know why? Because this leader, out of the great sea, could just as easily be a democratically elected leader. One that has profound, irrational power over the masses and one who potentially manipulates those who call themselves followers of God to worship that beast. Second, the danger of the religious beast. It seems to me that the religious beast coming out of the great sea is even more sinister than the first beast. Why? Because it takes religiosity, which seems at any given moment to be so right and even so Christian, and manipulates it in such a way that it promotes devotion to the first beast. People in the past might have and did look at this prophetic revelation and suggest that they saw it already. It was called Rome from Constantine on where the church helped to manipulate the masses to bow down to a holy Roman Empire and an unholy wedding between the church and the state. After all, had you been living through the Great Reformation and Protestants were being slaughtered daily, would you not have read this passage and thought, Rome, the papacy, the two great beasts as one. I admit I would have. But here's the thing. If you had thought that, you might not have been wrong. 
But you would not have had a complete understanding of the book of Revelation because the same pattern recurs in history again and will finally recur at the end. You could describe any number of wars and political leaders as apocalyptic. But you know the message that comes through is really, really clear and simple. In bold relief, don't give your full allegiance to anything or anyone but God. End of sentence. Put another way, don't mix your nationalism with your faith. Don't wrap your religion with any national flag. Don't anoint your leaders as gods. Don't align yourself with political leaders who can control, manipulate, and demand adulation. That much is clear. Crystal clear. So let me say something that I know my wife was worried about. We just passed through an election. And if either candidate in that election is given the adulation and worship and ideas lifted and elevated to the idea of eternal themes, that candidate for you is the beast. You cannot worship anyone but God. And we have to constantly remind ourselves of that. We have to constantly pull ourselves back and say, wait just a minute. Where am I? What am I thinking? Has my thinking been captured by the world and its present reality? Has my religion been so subverted by my view of politics that I can't think clearly anymore? My friends, we have to ask that question. If we don't ask those questions routinely throughout every generation, we fall into the trap that St. John was predicting that our religiosity helps us worship the political beast. It cannot be. Worship God and him only. And you know what that makes you and I? It makes us outsiders. You know what it makes you and I? It makes us aliens. It makes us pilgrims in this world. 
And frequently, as it has in the history of the church, it leads to persecution. But there's a wonderful phrase in chapter 14. Those who have been persecuted and lost their lives, we hear a message about them. And the message is full of hope. Here it is. Blessed are those who die of the Lord, for they rest from their labors, and their works follow them. What works? Remember the story that Jesus told of the seed planter? The parable? Who patiently planted tiny seeds? Remember the story he told of the seed that was so tiny you could hardly see it in your hand that was a mustard seed but turned into a gigantic tree? That's our labor. That's our work. Peacefully, quietly, unpretentiously planting the seeds of the kingdom of God. And someday, the harvest will come. Not on our time clock, on God's. Not the way we expected it, but the way God planned it. And when that great harvest of righteousness comes, we'll know it. And then we'll be able to pray the Lord's Prayer once again with completeness. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. Sometimes in the battle, no, more often than not in the battle, I feel tiny and significant and without a voice. I'm sure some of you do too. But think about this. Small, insignificant as you and I are, We've been invited into a story that is eternal. Is there anything that could give our small existence more hope than that? I don't think so. So join me in planting the seeds one by one. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We're, we're so privileged to have it. We don't have to make up meaning on our own. We don't have to flail around when personal difficulty is our lot and when world events seem to crush us. 
And when disease racks our body and threatens to snuff out our life and when persecution is overwhelming, we don't have to make up a story. We've got one. Our story has already been written. And we've been invited by faith to enter it. So Lord, give us the faith to believe it. Because tomorrow the story probably is going to seem a little further away than it does right now. And then Lord, give us grace to live it. Because as John's revelation says, we need patient endurance. So give us the grace of patient endurance. And then, Lord, from time to time, maybe in a worship service, maybe in a moment of quiet, maybe among the laughter of friends, just just draw back the curtain of heaven. Let us have a peek. A peek inside your grand design for those who follow you to encourage us to keep it up, to walk with you, our loving Savior and Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.